Section 38 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Germans under Arminius revolt against Rome, A.D. 9, by Sir Edward S. Creasy, Part 2. Arminius now gave the signal for a general attack. The fierce shouts of the Germans pealed through the gloom of the forests, and in thronging multitudes they assailed the flanks of the invaders, pouring in clouds of darts on the encumbered legionaries as they struggled up the glens or floundered in the morasses and watching every opportunity of charging through the intervals of the disjointed column and so cutting off the communication between its several brigades arminius with a chosen band of personal retainers around him cheered on his countrymen by voice and example he and his men aimed their weapons particularly at the horses of the roman cavalry the wounded animals slipping about in the mire and their own blood threw their riders and plunged among the ranks of the legions disordering all round them varus now ordered the troops to be countermarched in the hope of reaching the nearest roman garrison on the lip but retreat now was as impracticable as advance and the falling back of the romans only augmented the courage of their assailants and caused fiercer and more frequent charges on the flanks of the disheartened army the roman officer who commanded the cavalry pneumonius valla rode off with his squadrons in the vain hope of escaping by thus abandoning his comrades unable to keep together or force their way across the woods and swamps the horsemen were overpowered in detail and slaughtered to the last man the roman infantry still held together and resisted but more through the instinct of discipline and bravery than from any hope of success or escape varus after being severely wounded in a charge of the germans against his part of the column committed suicide to avoid falling into the hands of those whom he had exasperated by his oppressions one of the lieutenants general of the army fell fighting the other surrendered to the enemy but mercy to a fallen foe had never been a roman virtue and those among her legions who now laid down their arms in hope of quarter drank deep of the cup of suffering which rome had held to the lips of many a brave but unfortunate enemy the infuriated germans slaughtered their oppressors with deliberate ferocity and those prisoners who were not hewn to pieces on the spot were only preserved to perish by a more cruel death in cold blood the bulk of the roman army fought steadily and stubbornly frequently repelling the masses of assailants but gradually losing the compactness of their array and becoming weaker and weaker beneath the incessant shower of darts and the reiterated assaults of the vigorous and unencumbered germans at last in a series of desperate attacks the column was pierced through and through two of the eagles captured and the roman host which on the morning before 
had marched forth in such pride and might, now broken up into confused fragments, either fell fighting beneath the overpowering numbers of the enemy, or perished in the swamps and woods in unavailing efforts at flight. Few, very few, ever saw again the left bank of the Rhine. One body of brave veterans, arraying themselves in a ring on a little mound, beat off every charge of the Germans, and prolonged their honorable resistance to the close of that dreadful day. The traces of a feeble attempt at forming a ditch and mound attested in after years the spot where the last of the Romans passed their night of suffering and despair. But on the morrow, this remnant also, worn out with hunger, wounds, and toil, was charged by the victorious Germans, and either massacred on the spot, or offered up in fearful rites on the altars of the deities of the old mythology of the north. A gorge in the mountain ridge, through which runs the modern road between Paderborn and Piermont, leads from the spot where the heat of the battle raged to the Exterstein, a cluster of bold and grotesque rocks of sandstone, near which is a small sheet of water, overshadowed by a grove of aged trees. According to local tradition, this was one of the sacred groves of the ancient Germans, and it was here that the Roman captives were slain in sacrifice by the victorious warriors of Arminius. Never was victory more decisive. Never was the liberation of an oppressed people more instantaneous and complete. Throughout Germany, the Roman garrisons were assailed and cut off, and within a few weeks after Varus had fallen, the German soil was freed from the foot of an invader. At Rome, the tidings of the battle were received with an agony of terror, the reports of which we would deem exaggerated did they not come from Roman historians themselves. They not only tell emphatically how great was the awe which the Romans felt of the prowess of the Germans, if their various tribes could be brought to unite for a common purpose, but they also reveal how weakened and debased the population of Italy had become. Dion Cassius says, quote, Then Augustus, when he heard the calamity of Varus, rent his garment and was in great affliction for the troops he had lost, and for terror respecting the Germans and the Gauls, and his chief alarm was that he expected them to push on against Italy and Rome, and there remained no Roman youth fit for military duty that were worth speaking of, and the allied populations that were at all serviceable had been wasted away. Yet he prepared for the emergency as well as his means allowed, and when none of the citizens of military age were willing to enlist, he made them cast lots, and punished by confiscation of goods and disfranchisement, every fifth man among those under thirty-five, and every tenth man of those above that age. At last, when he found that not even thus could he make many come forward, he put some of them to death. So he made a conscription of discharged veterans and of emancipated slaves, and, collecting as large a force as he could, sent it under Tiberius with all speed into Germany. End quote. Footnote. It is clear that the Romans followed the policy of fomenting dissensions and wars of the Germans among themselves. End footnote. 
Dion mentions also a number of terrific portents that were believed to have occurred at the time, and the narration of which is not immaterial, as it shows the state of the public mind when such things were so believed in and so interpreted. The summits of the Alps were said to have fallen, and three columns of fire to have blazed up from them. In the Campus Martius, the temple of the war-god, from whom the founder of Rome had sprung, was struck by a thunderbolt. The nightly heavens glowed several times as if on fire. Many comets blazed forth together, and fiery meteors shaped like spears had shot from the northern quarter of the sky down into the Roman camps. It was said, too, that a statue of victory which had stood at a place on the frontier, pointing the way toward Germany, had of its own accord turned round and now pointed to Italy. These and other prodigies were believed by the multitude to accompany the slaughter of Varus's legions and to manifest the anger of the gods against Rome. Augustus himself was not free from superstition, but on this occasion no supernatural terrors were needed to increase the alarm and grief that he felt, and which made him, even months after the news of the battle had arrived, often beat his head against the wall and exclaim, quote, Quintilius Varus, give me back my legions. End quote. We learn this from his biographer Suetonius, and indeed every ancient writer who alludes to the overthrow of Varus attests the importance of the blow against the Roman power and the bitterness with which it was felt. The Germans did not pursue their victory beyond their own territory, but that victory secured at once and forever the independence of the Teutonic race. Rome sent, indeed, her legions again into Germany to parade a temporary superiority, but all hopes of permanent conquests were abandoned by Augustus and his successors. The blow which Arminius had struck never was forgotten. Roman fear disguised itself under the specious title of moderation, and the Rhine became the acknowledged boundary of the two nations until the fifth century of our era, when the Germans became the assailants, and carved with their conquering swords the provinces of imperial Rome into the kingdoms of modern Europe. Arminius I have said above that the great Cheruscan is more truly one of our national heroes than Caractacus is. It may be added that an Englishman is entitled to claim a closer degree of relationship with Arminius than can be claimed by any German of modern Germany. The proof of this depends on the proof of four facts. First, that the Cheruscans were old Saxons, or Saxons of the interior of Germany. Secondly, that the Anglo-Saxons, or Saxons of the coast of Germany, were more closely akin than other German tribes were to the Cheruscan Saxons. Thirdly, that the old Saxons were almost exterminated by Charlemagne. Fourthly, that the Anglo-Saxons are our immediate ancestors. The last of these may be assumed as an axiom in English history. The proofs of the other three are partly philological and partly historical. It may be, however, here remarked that the present Saxons of Germany are of the high Germanic division of the German race, whereas both the Anglo-Saxon and Old Saxon were of the low Germanic. 
being thus the nearest heirs of the glory of arminius we may fairly devote more attention to his career than in such a work as the present could be allowed to any individual leader and it is interesting to trace how far his fame survived during the middle ages both among the germans of the continent and among ourselves it seems probable that the jealousy with which marobodus the king of the suevi and marcomani regarded arminius and which ultimately broke out into open hostilities between those german tribes and the cheruski prevented arminius from leading the confederate germans to attack italy after his first victory perhaps he may have had the rare moderation of being content with the liberation of his country without seeking to retaliate on her former oppressors when tiberius marched into germany in the year ten arminius was too cautious to attack him on ground favorable to the legions and tiberius was too skilful to entangle his troops in the difficult parts of the country his march and countermarch were as unresisted as they were unproductive a few years later when a dangerous revolt of the roman legions near the frontier caused their generals to find them active employment by leading them into the interior of germany we find arminius again active in his country's defence the old quarrel between him and his father-in-law segestes had broken out afresh segestes now called in the aid of the roman general germanicus to whom he surrendered himself and by his contrivance his daughter thusnelda the wife of arminius also came into the hands of the romans she being far advanced in pregnancy she showed as tacitus relates more of the spirit of her husband than of her father a spirit that could not be subdued into tears or supplications she was sent to ravenna and there gave birth to a son whose life we know from an allusion in tacitus to have been eventful and unhappy but the part of the great historian's work which narrated his fate has perished and we only know from another quarter that the son of arminius was at the age of four years led captive in a triumphal pageant along the streets of rome the high spirit of arminius was goaded almost into frenzy by these bereavements the fate of his wife thus torn from him and of his babe doomed to bondage even before its birth inflamed the eloquent invectives with which he roused his countrymen against the home traitors and against their invaders who thus made war upon women and children germanicus had marched his army to the place where varus had perished and had there paid funeral honors to the ghastly relics of his predecessor's legions that he found heaped around him arminius lured him to advance a little farther into the country and then assailed him and fought a battle which by the roman accounts was a drawn one footnote in the museum of rhenish antiquities at bonn there is a roman sepulchral monument the inscription on which records that it was erected to the memory of monsieur quileus who fell bellavariano End footnote. the effect of it was to make germanicus resolve on retreating to the rhine he himself with part of his troops embarked in some vessels on the ems and returned by that river and then by sea 
but part of his forces were entrusted to a roman general named cassina to lead them back by land to the rhine arminius followed this division on its march and fought several battles with it in which he inflicted heavy loss on the romans captured the greater part of their baggage and would have destroyed them completely had not his skilful system of operations been finally thwarted by the haste of inguiomeris a confederate german chief who insisted on assaulting the romans in their camp instead of waiting till they were entangled in the difficulties of the country and assailing their columns on the march in the following year the romans were inactive but in the year afterward germanicus led a fresh invasion he placed his army on shipboard and sailed to the mouth of the ems where he disembarked and marched to the Weser, there encamping probably in the neighborhood of minden arminius had collected his army on the other side of the river and a scene occurred which is powerfully told by tacitus and which is the subject of a beautiful poem by Praed. it has been already mentioned that the brother of arminius like himself had been trained up while young to serve in the roman armies but unlike arminius he not only refused to quit the roman service for that of his country but fought against his country with the legions of germanicus he had assumed the roman name of flavius and had gained considerable distinction in the roman service in which he had lost an eye from a wound in battle when the roman outposts approached the river Weser, arminius called out to them from the opposite bank and expressed a wish to see his brother flavius stepped forward and arminius ordered his own followers to retire and requested that the archers should be removed from the roman bank of the river this was done and the brothers who apparently had not seen each other for some years began a conversation from the opposite sides of the stream in which arminius questioned his brother respecting the loss of his eye and what battle it had been lost in and what reward he had received for his wound flavius told him how the eye was lost and mentioned the increased pay that he had on account of its loss and showed the collar and other military decorations that had been given him arminius mocked at these as badges of slavery and then each began to try to win the other over flavius boasting the power of rome and her generosity to the submissive arminius appealing to him in the name of their country's gods of the mother that had borne them and by the holy names of fatherland and freedom not to prefer being the betrayer to being the champion of his country they soon proceeded to mutual taunts and menaces and flavius called aloud for his horse and his arms that he might dash across the river and attack his brother nor would he have been checked from doing so had not the roman general stertinius run up to him and forcibly detained him arminius stood on the other bank threatening the renegade and defying him to battle i shall not be thought to need apology for quoting here the stanzas in which Praed has described this scene a scene among the most affecting as well as the most striking that history supplies it makes us reflect on the desolate position of arminius with his wife and child captives in the enemy's hands and with his brother a renegade in arms against him 
the great liberator of our german race was there with every source of human happiness denied him except the consciousness of doing his duty to his country Quote, back back he fears not foaming flood who fears not steel-clad line no warrior thou of german blood no brother thou of mine go earn rome's chain to load thy neck her gems to deck thy hilt and blazon honour's hapless wreck with all the gods of guilt but wouldst thou have me share the prey by all that i have done the varian bones that day by day lie whitening in the sun the legions trampled panoply the eagle's shattered wing i would not be for earth or sky so scorned and mean a thing ho call me here the wizard boy of dark and subtle skill to agonize but not destroy to torture not to kill when swords are out and shriek and shout leave little room for prayer no fetter on man's arm or heart hangs half so heavy there i curse him by the gifts the land hath won from him and rome the riving axe the wasting brand rent forest blazing home i curse him by our country's gods the terrible the dark the breakers of the roman rods the smiters of the bark oh misery that such a ban on such a brow should be why comes he not in battle's van his country's chief to be to stand a comrade by my side the sharer of my fame and worthy of a brother's pride and of a brother's name but it is past where heroes press and cowards bend the knee arminius is not brotherless his brethren are the free they come around one hour and light will fade from turf and tide then onward onward to the fight with darkness for our guide to-night to-night when we shall meet in combat face to face then only would arminius greet the renegade's embrace the canker of rome's guilt shall be upon his dying name and as he lived in slavery so shall he fall in shame End quote. on the day after the romans had reached the weser germanicus led his army across that river and a partial encounter took place in which arminius was successful but on the succeeding day a general action was fought in which arminius was severely wounded and the german infantry routed with heavy loss the horsemen of the two armies encountered without either party gaining the advantage but the roman army remained master of the ground and claimed a complete victory germanicus erected a trophy in the field with a vaunting inscription that the nations between the rhine and the elbe had been thoroughly conquered by his army but that army speedily made a final retreat to the left bank of the rhine nor was the effect of their campaign more durable than their trophy the sarcasm with which tacitus speaks of certain other triumphs of roman generals over germans may apply to the pageant which germanicus celebrated on his return to rome from his command of the roman army of the rhine the germans were quote, triumphati potius quam victi after the romans had abandoned their attempts on germany 
we find Arminius engaged in hostilities with Marobodus, king of the Suevi and Marcomanni, who was endeavoring to bring the other German tribes into a state of dependency on him. Arminius was at the head of the Germans who took up arms against this home invader of their liberties. After some minor engagements, a pitched battle was fought between the two confederacies, A.D. 19, in which the loss on each side was equal, but Marobodus confessed the ascendancy of his antagonist by avoiding a renewal of the engagement and by imploring the intervention of the Romans in his defense. The younger Drusus then commanded the Roman legions in the province of Illyricum, and by his mediation a peace was concluded between Arminius and Marobodus, by the terms of which, it is evident, that the latter must have renounced his ambitious schemes against the freedom of the other German tribes. Arminius did not long survive this second war of independence, which he successfully waged for his country. He was assassinated in the thirty-seventh year of his age by some of his own kinsmen who conspired against him. Tacitus says that this happened while he was engaged in a civil war, which had been caused by his attempts to make himself king over his countrymen. It is far more probable, as one of the best biographers has observed, that Tacitus misunderstood an attempt of Arminius to extend his influence as elective war chieftain of the Cherusci and other tribes for an attempt to obtain the royal dignity. When we remember that his father-in-law and his brother were renegades, we can well understand that a party among his kinsmen may have been bitterly hostile to him, and have opposed his authority with the tribe by open violence, and, when that seemed ineffectual, by secret assassination. Arminius left a name which the historians of the nation, against which he combated so long and so gloriously, have delighted to honor. It is from the most indisputable source, from the lips of enemies, that we know his exploits. His countrymen made history but did not write it, but his memory lived among them in the days of their bards, who recorded, quote, the deeds he did, the fields he won, the freedom he restored, end quote. Tacitus, writing years after the death of Arminius, says of him, Canitur ad hoc barbarus apugentis, end quote. As time passed on, the gratitude of ancient Germany to her great deliverer grew into adoration, and divine honors were paid for centuries to Arminius by every tribe of the low Germanic division of the Teutonic races. The Irminsul, or the Column of Hermann, near Erzberg, the modern Stadtberg, was the chosen object of worship to the descendants of the Cheruski, the old Saxons and in defense of which they fought most desperately against Charlemagne and his Christianized Franks. Quote, Irmin, in the cloudy Olympus of Teutonic belief, appears as a king and a warrior, and the pillar, the Irmin Sul, bearing the statue and considered as the symbol of the deity, was the palladium of the Saxon nation until the temple of Erzberg was destroyed by Charlemagne, and the column itself transferred to the monastery of Corby, where perhaps a portion of the rude rock idol yet remains, covered by the ornaments of the Gothic era. Traces of the worship of Arminius are to be found among our Anglo-Saxon ancestors after their settlement in this island. 
one of the four great highways was held to be under the protection of the deity and was called the ermin street the name arminius is of course the mere latinized form of hermon the name by which the hero and the deity were known by every man of low german blood on either side of the german sea it means etymologically the war man the man of hosts no other explanation of the worship of the Irmin Sul and of the name of the Irmin Street is so satisfactory as that which connects them with the deified Arminius. We know for certain of the existence of other columns of an analogous character. Thus there was the Roland Sul in North Germany, there was a Thor Sul in Sweden, and, what is more important, there was an Athelstan Sul in Saxon England. End of section thirty eight. Recording by Linda Johnson. End of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume Two. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rude.